So I'm speaking to Anne-Marie Lewis, founder and director of Rainmakers Worldwide and the Rainmakers Group. Hello, Anne-Marie. Hi, Helen. How are you? I'm all right. It's always an honour and a pleasure to have you on air. So I hope you've had a good week so far. Yeah, it's been great. And it's always an honour to be on here with you. So yeah. Oh, good. I know Dave and I were fighting over you because it's like I got you this time last time he, he interviewed you. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, you're always really, really busy and you're um, a leading business and social justice consultant, highly sought after in the fields of uh, business strategy, leadership, development, success coaching, um, business startups, but also you have a heart for the social justice. And that's why I called you particularly this week. I've just, um, well, I just had enough of watching the news and hearing the news all about, you know, the crime levels and, and violent levels. Um, you know, I was just reading a report saying there's been over over 40,000 incidents, including knives um, in arrests in, in London this year. So it's horrific, isn't it? And I've got a list about three pages of all the actual stabbings and I just can't take it. So I thought, thought maybe you could shine some light on this today for us. Yeah, sure. Well, there's a lots of things to say. So firstly, though I do a lot of the business side of things, um, the social justice part to my consultancy, I'm specialised in youth justice. And that's been my main field and what I've been in for 24 years in the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. I've actually just conducted some research around serious youth violence and looking at the statistics and looking at what the real picture is. And I think it's a twofold story. So on one hand, the majority of young Londoners, young people are doing brilliantly and they're, you know, they're actually excelling in many areas, many fields. Mm -hmm. So the situation that is being portrayed, particularly by media, um, is only telling one story. Mm -hmm. So what we know is that serious youth violence and people think that it's synonymous with gangs and things like that. Gangs make up maybe 5% of the majority of serious youth violence for a start. And as I said, majority of reporting in the media, 76% at the moment, report people negatively, young people. Um, mm-hmm. um, but there's only a small fraction of young people involved in Good. criminality. So that's the first thing. Some people are even saying it's black on black. I hate to say it, but I'm just I'm yeah. just relaying what some people's attitude towards it is saying, you know, oh, it's a black on yeah. black crime. Is that true or just... So- you know? It's not true. And that is one of the things that the media portray. So in London, it's predominantly higher against BME communities. And Mm -hmm. the same would be said in Birmingham, maybe Manchester, Liverpool, places where you find larger amounts of BME communities. Right. Right. Okay. Now, the first thing we'll say is at the moment, there's 68 percent of young people who are victims of serious violence and also perpetrators are from a BME background. Right. So the 32 percent that are non-BME, you have never seen being portrayed in the newspapers. We don't Mm. care about, that's at least one in every three, right? Yeah. And you don't see that, we don't hear about it, it's not reported on. Right. Um, There are multiple reasons why you will find that it's higher in London, particularly with BME. And that, number one, is because particularly from Windrush generations, these are the areas, London, Birmingham, Liverpool, Luton, where you found most of the BME community settled. So that's just as a blanket um, situation. But beyond that, it's because there are multiple levels of disadvantage, trauma and other situations that are impacting BME communities in terms of reporting, in terms of being stopped, in terms of sentencing, in terms of mental health, in lots of different situations where they are completely disproportionate to other communities. So they're getting labelled, in other words? They're getting totally labelled. Mm. And also, as I said, the reporting is particular 
to drive one narrative. And that narrative is not reflected or supported in stop and search figures. It's not supported in um, actual sentences and actual criminality. You find that a lot more BME communities are arrested and remanded, but then acquitted at the end of their trial and things like that. So, so it's just trying to bring a context and bring a balance to the situation. Now, with all of that being said, is there a major problem? Yes. Do we have a rival a crisis on our hands? Absolutely, because the small group of people that are involved are impacting thousands across. The estimation is with one particular gang member or somebody who's involved in criminality from socio and economic factors, they could ripple effect, effect up yeah. to 6,000. So they're giving the good ones a bad name, in other words. Yeah, they are. And also they're impacting so massively on um, crime and on people's lives just from the small number. So there is a major problem and it does need to be sorted. Mm-hmm. But I just wanted to first give yeah. a balance. So um, whose fault is it? Is it the parents? Is it the education system? Is it peer pressure? Uh, is it the government? You know, is it the postcode? It's all of the above and more. Mm-hmm. So I would say that there are multiple levels of reasons. And what we're doing at the moment is we treat symptoms. We do not treat the root. Right. Now, what we're, we're always looking at the issues around um, the young person themselves, why are they involved? But it goes beyond that. The criminal networks and criminal families is largely at the root of where knives, guns, drugs, yeah, drugs exactly. Yeah. All mm. of those things are actually from a much higher set of people, mm-hmm. you know, and the police know this and it's been reported widely. And that needs to be addressed, number one. We then have the issues of multiple levels of disadvantage and trauma, again, that needs to be addressed. The prison system needs to be addressed. Parenting, support. There's lots of areas. Plus, we're dealing with social media at this stage, which has had a huge impact on young people being egged on, young people, you know, having um, cyberbullying, having situations being escalated over things like Snapchat platforms and other online platforms. So, you know, young people can get information to each other at milliseconds now. You know, mm. things can be organised and transported via social media that was never there before. And the other area you've got is things like we have proof now that the violent video games and consoles at young ages has a direct impact on escalations of sexual and physical violence amongst young people. You know, there's lots of mm. lots of areas. Education, being excluded from school mm. is almost like a... the increase is like four times higher for someone who's excluded Mm. from the school system to go straight into the prison system. So there are a number of areas that need to be addressed. And we have protective factors. There's so much research that talks about the protective factors, early intervention, prevention. And I think that that the problem is that resources from all of the agencies, like local authorities, central local government, uh, organisations like myself, businesses, collectively as a community, always together, our resources are being directed into the wrong thing. And if we were right. able to change that, I think we would see a big difference. So go to the root instead of the symptoms, treating the after once it's happened, do you mean? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. More um, positive activities for young people, reverse some of the cuts that have been done um, in austerity. Yes, we understand that enforcement is important. There is a role for the police. Cressida Dick herself has made it clear you cannot police our way out of this situation alone. It's impossible. So we have to look at where enforcement is best used and look at where prevention can be best used, where early intervention is best used and how to be effective where we drive the limited resources that we have. Mm -hmm. Now all this great research and information that you've spent sounds like years um, you know mastering who have you been able to present it to 
that has listened and um, which is able to influence um, change? What I would say is that over the years, not just myself, many, many people and many great organisations have presented to local government, central government, uh, London mayor, mayor's office, right across the board, anyone and everyone who would and can listen. Whether it has been effectively implemented is debatable. Mm-hmm. Um and whether our influence has been, I would say, high enough or reached the right ears, again, is debatable. Mm-hmm. Um, but to say that, you know, that the evidence is there. Mm-hmm. And I would say that um, I have been calling, as has many others, for us to be listened to and heard mm-hmm. even more. So my next question, Anne-Marie, is when are you going to go for that seat in Parliament? <laughs> no, I'm serious. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm really serious. Several people have uh, have have asked me about that. And to be honest, at this stage, I'm concentrating on just delivering the solutions as best I can, getting mm-hmm. the information to the right people as best I can. I haven't thought further than that in terms of parliament. We'll see. Mm-hmm. But do you think sometimes it might be falling on deaf ears um, if they're from a different walk of life? Or do they? Do you think they do try to understand? My personal experience is that whatever is going to feed the political agenda of the day mm-hmm. will have the biggest voice and the biggest influence. So with re-elections coming up, whatever is going to put that person in the best light, mm-hmm. that's where their focus is going to be. So it's so for me personally to say that it's falling on deaf ears. Mm-hmm. Yes, I would say that to a certain extent, not totally, but I would say that um, there are many of us who have got direct experience, um, frontline experience, and we've got regional, national, as well as academia and all sorts of things who have not been given the platform at the table because I do believe it doesn't suit a particular agenda. Right. This issue, which is generic, whichever walk of life you come from, because everyone knows someone who's been affected by this or or a community that's been affected by this. So at what point does it come when, you know, we live in the UK, we all pay our taxes. At what point do the people have a voice and say, well, actually, this this just isn't good enough because we don't feel safe on our streets in which we pay to live. Well, at what point will the change come? How many lives will it cost, do you think? I think the change will come when the community, and that's the whole community, do just that. Um, and it's what you said, understand that this is not a BME issue. It's not uh, one particular part of one particular community's issue. It is affecting everybody. And until the communities come together and say, actually... It impacts even at the most callous sort of reason. If you just think of the economics, taxpayers' money just to investigate one stabbing, one shooting, it can range from £250,000 up to a million pounds just to investigate one. You know, if you have a young person in custody from the whole process from going to arrest to court to trial um, and incarcerated could cost in the region of 160 to 170,000 pounds for one young person. At the moment, we have 90,000 people in the prison system. You wow. see what I mean? So just on a basic economic mm. level, if people don't feel personally connected, they should be connected just by the fact that their taxes are being, money's being taken out of NHS, out of policing, out of all of these schooling, mm. everything else to go on a criminal justice system that's failing. So that's mm. the first thing. On a human level, on a moral level, on a heart level, anybody's child who's murdered under these horrific circumstances affects all of us. It affects the whole community. And it is 
a community issue from that sense. And we should be holding our local and central governments to account. We must hold them to account. We mm -hmm. must have a voice that says this is not acceptable. If we have a zero tolerance approach to violence, if we ask our universities, our businesses, our politicians, media to be responsible and come together and now start to change the culture and context of violence that we have right now in this country, then we're going to start to see be drivers of change. And the way, where the Christian communities and other faith communities come in, we should be setting the trends. And I believe that wholeheartedly. If we are confident and we are clear about a Christian worldview and we are able to beak the love of Jesus and his approach to dealing with cultural issues of the day, I think we would see a massive change. At the moment, 66% of the prison service identifies Christian. That's big. That's huge. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? So as a community, when people say to me as Christians, this is not my field or we are not impacted, I'm saying absolutely it is because 66% of directly our men, women and, and children who are incarcerated identify with being Christian yeah. and 12% um, identify with Muslim. So you've got nearly 80% of the prison service identifying with a faith. So there is a massive role for faith groups mm -hmm. to be involved. And I believe that one of the biggest failings is that the faith groups do not have a voice at the table of senior um, government in this, okay. particularly in this field. Yeah. That has to change. Right. So that means when are you going to become a politician? Anyway, so I mean, that, that is really vital information. And, you know, as a community, well, when you say as a community, we need to make change, where does it start? I think it firstly starts in the home. Mm -hmm. And I think it's empowering parents, number one, to have a voice and to not be afraid to discipline their children. Fears of reprisals from the government is what I've heard a lot of parents mm. talking about. You know, if we put any disciplinary processes in place, they call social services and all of this kind of stuff. So mm. that's number one. Um, we, we have to empower parents to be able to parent in this. Mm. Um, let's, let's just go back to what you said. Mm. You know, when that law was brought in place, and I, not, I have mm. looked into this law, but mm. children, I'm sure, rebellious children, well know that they could just threaten their parents with the social services. And I know a parent that actually reprimanded their ch child and social services turned up on their doorstep. So when when will the government actually say, well, actually, that was probably a bad law, bad move? Um, I know that I know children obviously need to be protected from violence. Mm. And, you know, but I think whether there's a law in place or not, if there's a violent person, they're going to hit their child nasty. You know, they're going to be violent towards their child, whether there's laws in place or not. And um, my mm. qu question is, do you think the government regret that decision because now you've got all these children running wild? I think that there are many ways of disciplining your child. Um, not, I'm not necessarily an advocate for smacking children, but what I would say is that children who are well aware of this law have totally manipulated the law. Mm. So I know personally, like yourself, where a child has not been smacked at all, mm. and but they have said that because the parent took away their PlayStation and took away some other games and mm. put discipline in, and they said, I'm going to tell social services that you smack me. Right. I also know children who have smacked themselves and have called social services, oh, called the police no. and said that their parents have done this. So mm. because so we are in a situation where the law is restricting parents mm. on how to discipline and is empowering children yeah. to use these laws to their advantage because they're not silly. You know, we think that kids at, you know, at young ages don't have the intelligence to do this sort of stuff. Yes, they do, number one. And secondly, they are mixing and hanging around with a lot older people who will say this is what you need to do. This is what you need to say. And by mm. just threatening the parent to do it, the parents often back down. Mm. So there's a lot of and also we have a lot of um, children who are being medicated 
affected, having mental health issues. So there's a lot of challenges that parents didn't necessarily have to deal with years ago that they're dealing with now because of the environments and the changes of situations and cultures and online stuff that we're seeing in today's mm. market. So parents aren't sure how to parent in this day and age, which I totally mm. understand. So often we would say it's a, it's a bad parent, this, that and the other, and that's far from the case. So It's a bad child. Yeah. <laughs> well, not the behaviour is bad, isn't it? It's yeah, not. it's the behaviour. The children themselves, you know, I, I've worked in this school for years. To be honest, I'm yet to really see what I would say is a bad child. I don't I don't believe that. Mm. And I'm often, it is their environment and mm. it has been situations, a set of situations that has ended up with children's behaviour being off the scale completely. Mm. But there are things that can be done at a much earlier stage if the government... And not just the government, but if the government and the communities and social services and all of the agencies were at the same table at the same time, able to and were released enough to actually do their job properly without the bureaucracy and the red tapes and all of this other kind of stuff. Yeah. And I'll give you one last thing that really struck me. A friend of mine was at a conference for children in care. And I just thought it was one of the most profound things. One of the men that was speaking, he said, the state is supposed to be your, your parent in absence of your parents being able to take care of you when you get taken into the care system. And he said, how do most families deal with their children? And of course, people were saying, you know, we hug them, we kiss them, we love on them. And he said, exactly. And he said, when the children in care have gone through the care system, you tell us years later that we are emotionally disconnected and we're this and we're that and we're other. But nobody was allowed to hug us as a child because mm. the state says as a worker or a foster carer or this, that and the other, you can't do this and you can't hug and you can't do that. And he was saying, what do you expect children who have been devoid of love mm. and abandoned and rejected to grow up to be? And the statistics bear out what he was saying in that 38 percent, there's less than less than one percent of all children in England are in care. But they make up 38 percent of the mm, 10 to 14 year olds in the secure system and 42 percent in the juvenile estate. That's horrific. That's terrible. It's terrible. It's- that's really sad isn't it you know I, I had a friend um that grew up in care and he was one of my friends at school because I felt mm. he was just a nice guy and mm. um he ended up really you know he died very very young because he ended up mm. going to London and becoming a cool boy you know and he, and he ended up um, dying of AIDS and it was really mm. sad to hear that but he had mm. he felt he had no other another no other yeah. way because no one would love him. And it was it was heartbreaking because he was such a nice, yeah. nice person. Um, it's horrific. They end up homeless more than anybody else. They end up with mental health institutions more than anybody else. And if we know this about our care system, it is our duty to do something mm. about this, you know? Change these laws yeah. that say you can't hug a child, for goodness sake. Yes. I understand you have to protect to a certain extent, but surely, to goodness sake, yeah, Everyone have needs to, a hug. You know, you know what's, what's, hug. what's yeah. wrong with hugging? You know, exactly. hugging's a positive thing. Isn't it? Exactly. Anyway, yeah, exactly. so you sp- spoke earlier about how much it costs to get them, you know, 250000 when to investigate a crime and it's taxpayers' money. Um, when I was young, we grew up, there was everyone had, you know, there was lots of youth clubs and things mm. to do for young people. Uh, I don't know what I'd done without those youth clubs. But with regard to the money that's being spent on, you know, I don't want to say wasted, but if mm. that problem didn't occur in the first place, couldn't that money be used for um, funding for social things for the young people to do? Have mm. they not got enough insight to see that if they invested in those outlets, there would be less problems in the long run? They do have the insight and they know this. And this is why I say as communities, we need to hold our leaders to account. Because the question is, if you know this, why are you not doing it? And we don't want to hear political answers about austerity and which government 
government did what we because all of those things are just futile we know that by cutting services in this area you are going to increase anarchy across the board they don't need any more research they don't need any more evidence they don't need any more insight the question is now why aren't you doing what you know to do and I, and that can be done in a number of ways through local councillors so you can either become a councillor yourself mm. or you can lobby your local um, councillors to ask these questions in parliament for you speak to your local mps um, one of the ways I do encourage people to get involved is get involved in being a school governor, get involved in going to local council meetings and having your say and having your voice heard, because that way we can start to make changes or put the pressure on those in leadership to make the changes that we need. And how do you think schools can help in the education system? Because it is a very um, old fashioned system. And if you yeah. don't fit in, then you're not stupid, are you? Just that's that's not the way you learn. So how can the attitudes to education change so that they're not excluded? I think that we have two major problems. We have the exclusion and then we have what they call excluded inclusion. So you're excluded internally. Both of those issues need to be really challenged and we need to look at how we are labelling. So at the moment, I've been hearing that they're going to now start to build pupil referral units for five-year-olds, which I think is highly inappropriate. What we need to be looking at is if instead of building a pupil referral unit, why not build an academic um, or an entrepreneurial centre that caters to the needs of children who don't learn in a specific way but mm. are very entrepreneurial very hands-on why don't we why don't we do things like that why don't we find alternative education or learning systems that mm. work for pupils who don't fit traditional education mm-hmm. um, because what we have found and lots of um, examples are there now that a lot of these young people are very entrepreneurial and they are highly intelligent motivated great when you put them in a different when they're using their hands or their creative thinking and they're doing all that kind of stuff you see a total difference and a total change mm. I personally think we need to look at how we're medicating young people because there's also been evidence that says people are being diagnosed or misdiagnosed with mental health issues particularly those that come from a certain background because people have been programmed to believe that's what it is mm. when actually it could just simply be they were bored in class or they their intelligence has not been stimulated or they are operating at such a level that the rest of the curriculum is not meeting their particular need and right. it's like we automatically say they've got behavioural problems, they've mm. got ADHD, for example, and we're medicated. I read somewhere that it's just a fabricated thing that we, we invented to bypass our, exactly what you say, teaching someone mm. who who is, um, you know, not being stimulated properly. I've heard that too. There's been lots of theories. And a recent article came out talking about, 70, I think they were saying that up to 70% of uh, children who were diagnosed with ADHD don't necessarily have ADHD. A lot of it has to do with, um, or certainly this particular article was talking about young people having sleep if they have sleep disruption or if they breathe through their mouth it medically does something to their brain so we're seeing in lots of different examples misdiagnosis Mm. and as you said I've also read and heard several places that you know this was some something that someone just came up with Mm. so um thank you so much for talking to us I'm speaking to Anne-Marie Lewis and she's the founder of Rainmakers Worldwide and um such an advocate for social justice um Marie uh, Anne-Marie what last um conclusion and and, uh, advice would you like to give someone who really wants to make change out there I would say the first thing to do is connect with um, local community groups or local council, your local police station. Look for places where you can volunteer, like school governor, all of those sorts of things. It could be in your church diocese or, you know, somewhere where you can actually get your voice heard and get involved in local community activities and then start to build, you know, your relationships out, you know, beyond that. 
Um, if you really want to set up something yourself, there are so many uh, places. The School for Social Entrepreneurs is one. Um, people can connect with me, myself, particularly Christians. Um, I help a lot of Christian people ha- uh, set up their organizations or point them where they can go to get that help. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's many people like me as well. Um, so those will be the two first things. Get involved locally where you are. And if you want to set up your own thing, then there are lots of organisations around that can help mm-hmm. with that. So you saying if someone has an idea but they don't, they, they want to make themselves available, can they contact you and say, look, Anne-Marie, I really want to do this. Can you point me in the right direction? Yes, you can mm-hmm. definitely do that. Great. And there are plenty of other places that, um, you know, that I can also give you as well um, a list of places. So you have resources. Yeah. Yeah. And marie how can they get in touch with you? They can go to the Rainmakers Worldwide website, which is www.rainmakersworldwide.org.uk. They can also contact me on Anne-Marie at rainmakersworldwide.org.uk. And it's one word, A-N-N-M-A-R-I-E. They just send an email um, or they go to the website. We're just literally upgrading the website now. So um, I'm just finishing my campaign mm. next week and then we'll have all of that redone. So mm-hmm. um, they'll be able to contact me on a few different ways. But for now, that's the best way. Mm-hmm. Now, I've been seeing you. Have you been doing some um, interesting, adventurous things to raise money? I have, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I caught you doing something yeah. down, abseiling down a building. Now, what, what was the last thing you did? On, on... <laughs> so it wasn't me, thank God. Um, <laughs> but one of my friends, so that, that campaign finishes next week, actually. Okay. A friend of mine volunteered to abseil down her work building. <laughs> and it is hilarious, the video. It's brilliant. <laughs> um, in order to kickstart and raise money so that we can redo a whole digital platform for um, our beneficiaries and also so that we can basically get this information out to a much wider audience so we Mm -hmm. want to be able to have resources online so that's basically what we're raising money for so that we can get all this information people can just go to the websites for free and download what they need so you're a social enterprise aren't you yeah so does that mean people if someone's listening they want to donate have you got um, some yeah it's on the just giving so if they go to rainmakers worldwide on justgiving.com they will find us there but also there's a donate option through my website because it's yeah that side of our work is completely not for profit mm-hmm, great and marie thank you so much for speaking to us here on ugn jams of course i'm speaking to Anne marie lewis her founder and director of rainmakers worldwide thank you god bless have a great week <laughs> thank you so much take right. care okay